In this third lecture, uh, as I indicated to you uh, this morning, I would like to uh, turn, in a sense, at an even more practical level than what we were looking at uh, in the last lecture. I kind of look at this as becoming going from the more theoretical to the more practical as we as we go along. And so the last, uh, the, 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 the second lecture, uh, we considered some of these biblical themes of being a sojourner, uh, a, a, an exile, and thinking about how we see these themes in the scripture and how they illuminate our obligations, our calling as Christians now uh, in the New Testament. And uh, what I'd like to do uh, now for this third lecture I hope it's not too much to try to do these three things. Uh, I can always cut some material or keep you longer. It was polite of you to laugh at that, you know. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, I'd like to talk first about the unique mission of the church as a corporate body. And then to turn to think about our, our, our everyday voc- uh, vocations or occupations our, our, our work. And then thirdly, to delve just a little bit into the question of Christianity and politics and the, our involvement in uh, political life. I know that's a really small topic, so I can just do that quickly at the end. <laughs> so first, the unique mission uh, of the church. Sometimes I think we're tempted to think of this whole Christianity and culture issue uh, as an individual issue. Uh, how am I to, you know, do my job uh, out Monday through Friday? How am I to uh, educate my kids or uh, how am I to vote or get involved in politics or whatever? But I think it's very important that we recognize that there is this corporate dimension to the larger Christianity and culture issue. So it's not just a matter of me as an individual but it's also a matter of us as, as the church, as churches. Uh, what are we to do as a corporate body? What is our place in the world? Uh, are there things that the church is to do that maybe we don't do as individuals? Or are there things that we as individuals are called to do that the church as a corporate body is not called to do? Are there things we're called to do in other institutions of human society that we're not supposed to try to do through the church? Uh, there are, so there are several related questions that uh, I hope we can uh, do some thinking about, uh, first of all, uh, this hour. Now, I, 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 I want you to think, this is a, in some ways a very practical question, but I, I, I do want you to think theologically with me now for uh, a, a couple minutes, and I, I, I hope you'll be able to follow um, a couple of biblical points here. I think if you follow these biblical theological points, it's going to be a lot easier to follow uh, some of my subsequent comments. I mentioned Matthew 16 uh, in my second lecture. In Matthew 16, uh, Jesus uh, says... Uh, You are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Christ came 
to establish the church. Now, one thing that's interesting to note about that is that that is the only organization or institution or community, whatever word you want to use, the only one that Christ established. Never think about that. Christ didn't come and establish the family. He didn't, ha- he didn't have to do that. The family had already been established by God at creation. He didn't come and establish civil government. Silver governments already existed by God's uh, ordination. Christ didn't come and start a small business. There are lots of small businesses around. They didn't call them small businesses back then, but there are lots of small businesses around. Christ didn't need to come and establish the corporation. Um, Christ came and he only established one thing, and that is the church. And furthermore, I I want you to note something that I pointed out uh, briefly in my second lecture, is that Christ only gave to his church one thing. He gave it the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, There are a lot of other things he could have given to the church. I said last hour, he, he might have given the church a military. He didn't. Uh, he gave it the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And this is what he gave to the church to fulfill its task. We trust that what the Lord gave to the church was sufficient for what he wanted the church to do. Now, I just want you to, just from the, the, the very fact that Christ established one thing, the church, and that he gave the church one thing, the keys of the kingdom, there are some pretty important consequences that follow from that, of the things that the rest of the New Testament confirms and helps us to understand better. But one thing to note is that the church has responsibilities that no other organization or institution or community has. Because there's no other, there's no other group, no other organization to which Christ has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He didn't give the keys to the civil government. He didn't give the keys to any business corporation. He didn't give it to any university. He didn't give it to any family. He only gave it to the church. And that means the church has responsibilities that are unique. There are things that the church must do that no other organization can do. No other organization is authorized by God to do. But that also means that because Christ gave to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven and nothing else, it also means that there are a lot of things that other organizations, other groups, other institutions are called to do that the church is not called to do. There are important things that the government is supposed to do, like bear the sword, Genesis 9, 6, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That is the government's responsibility. But it's not the church's. The church has no authorization from Christ to do that. Christ didn't give the sword to his church. Sometimes the church in history has acted as though God gave her the sword. And there are some very sorry, sad aspects of church history in which the church has acted like that. But... I hope, you, uh, I hope this is beginning to come clear here. There are things that the church is supposed to do that no one else is supposed to do, no other organization. And there are things that other organizations have been called to do 
that the church has not been given any authority to do. It's not been given the equipment to do it. And I think key to understanding this, at least very, very helpful for understanding this, is the the idea of the two kingdoms. You see, if you think back for a moment to the covenant with Noah, God preserves this world and preserves the structures of this world, preserves, uh, I mean, we see right there in the covenant with Noah, the family, you know, be fruitful and multiply. We see civil government. He who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. You can even say, you see, you see economic life in the covenant with Noah. I mean, God gives us plants and animals to eat and says, eat them. Well, that means you need property. It means you need people who are farming, people who are baking. Uh, there is... There is this life uh, that God has given, these responsibilities God has given to the world as a whole. And there are things like the family, things like the state, things like businesses that rise up as we carry out these many responsibilities. But the church doesn't grow out of the covenant with Noah. It wasn't as if people living in the covenant of Noah would say, wow, we need to have a church And the church needs to preach the gospel and baptize and celebrate the Lord's Supper. That took a special act by God. That took a special act in which his son came and said, I will build my church and I will give to her the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The church reflects, it manifests the life of the kingdom here and now. No other organization is called to do that. Uh, but the church is. Now, one of the things that I would like you to consider as we uh, think about this idea, the church in our own day, and it's not unique to our own day because this has been a common problem, temptation for the church through history, is that the church so often gets distracted by a myriad of pursuits and loses its focus on what it's really called to do. There is a real temptation for the church to try to take on to itself all sorts of responsibilities. And what happens so often is that in getting so busy with so many things, it forgets what its real job is. Its real job to minister the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned this in the second lecture. What are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? First and foremost, it's the word of God. That's what he gives to his church. That is what unlocks the gates of the kingdom here and now. And accompanying this word of God are baptism and the Lord's Supper, these symbols, these signs of the work of Christ confirming us and strengthening us uh, in the life that is in Christ. You might say also that he's given the church uh, a, a kind of discipline, the discipline described in Matthew 18, where we go and we, we call each other to repentance. We seek to restore one another if we sin. This is what Christ has given to us. These are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The job of the church is to proclaim that gospel of the, that is found in the word of God. The job of the church is to bind God's people together into a community that eats and drinks the body and blood of Christ symbolized for us in the supper. This is what the church is called to do. 
Or you might think of the way it's summarized in Acts 2, verse 42. Remember, after the, the events of Pentecost and that uh, the initial preaching by Peter and all these people were confessing their faith and joining the church, and Acts 2, verse 42 says that these believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. That's what the church did when it heard the word preached. It devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, the word of God. It devoted itself to fellowship. It devoted itself to the breaking of bread. Probably, first of all, referring to the Lord's Supper. And devoted itself to prayer. Now you think about that. There are a lot of things that might have been said. These believers, as the, 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 that first church didn't devote themselves to economic development, health and fitness, and political activism, just to name a few things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread uh, and prayer. And where does this leave us today? I'd suggest this means that we don't go to our civil government, to our employer. We don't go to our health club and expect them to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We don't expect our civil government, our employer, our health club to be preaching the word and administering baptism and the supper and devoting itself to prayer and the fellowship. If we are looking to those organizations to do those things, we're looking in vain because Christ has not given to them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But that also means that we are not to look to the church of Jesus Christ to be a community of political activism. Not to look to the church of Jesus Christ to be an instrument of economic development. To look to the church of Jesus Christ to be a health club. Is it good for Christians to be involved in these things? Am I saying you shouldn't be politically involved? Am I saying you shouldn't be economically active and helping other people develop their economic skills? Am I saying you shouldn't belong to a health club? Am I saying you shouldn't join your you know, pastor and his long bike rides? <laughs> that would probably take money away from these health clubs that want to keep people indoors, right? But, uh, well, no, I'm not saying those things. It's good for you to be involved in those things. But it's not the job of the church of Jesus Christ to do these things. We're not to turn the church into a political action committee. We're not to turn the church into an economic development association. We're not to turn the church into a, a health club. I hope you get part of this point. There are things that we as individuals are called to do, to pursue with gusto, to bless our neighbors in doing them without seeking to make the church the instrument for doing these things. You are called to do these things, not your pastor and his official duties doing them for you. Now, let me mention one more thing in regard to the uniqueness of the church and its, its work. This is 
this is a little bit of a different thought, but it's, uh, it's still exploring this general question about the uniqueness of the church. There is one thing that the church shares in common with basically every other organization, club, institution, community in this world. And that's that there's conflict. All right? I'm sure you've never been in a church where there hasn't been some conflict. Uh, where there haven't been people who did bad things. People who got angry at each other. People who offended each other. People who harmed each other. Right? It's, it's, true, of, it's true of every family. It's true of every business. It's true in government. Well... How is the church to handle conflict? Conflict is common to the human condition. How does the church handle conflict? Is there anything about the way the church handles it that's different from the way other organizations handle it? I'll just think of the church in comparison with the civil government. How does civil government to handle conflict, to handle disputes among people? Well, I've already said this. The state is given the sword. The state operates by the principle of Genesis 9, verse 6. He who sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed. Romans 13, the state, civil magistrate, does not bear the sword in vain, but is there to punish the evildoer, to be God's agent of vengeance upon those who do wrong. The state is called to do justice. But what about the church? Is there anything about who we are as a church? Is there anything about what's unique about us as a church that makes us look differently about conflict, about resolving disputes? Well, who are we as a church? We are the community of the justified. We are the community of those whose sins have been forgiven who are counted righteous in Christ, for whom Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? We are those, to put it in another way, for whom all the claims of justice have been satisfied once and for all in Jesus Christ. Should that affect the way we operate as a body? You can't say those things about the city of Omaha. You can't say those things about that business you work for. You can't say that about other organizations of this world, but you can say that about the church. I want you just to consider for a moment how the the Bible speaks about the church's way of handling conflict. It is a way that reflects who we are. You might think already in the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, in Matthew 5. Someone slaps you on the cheek, what are you to do? Eye for an eye? Well, Jesus says, no, not eye for an eye. You turn the other cheek. Is that the way you would want your civil government to operate? You go to, if someone wrongs you, you go to court, is that, think that would be the right outcome? But that's how God calls us as his people to act. Have you ever thought about that dynamic there? Do you ever think about, if you put that into practice, how you are illustrating the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you think about it, 
If someone slaps you on the cheek, what is the just response? Slapping the other cheek, right? That's eye for an eye. That's justice. You might think about your relationship to God. It's almost as if we slapped God in the face. What would be the just response of God to slap us back? What did God do? God didn't say to us, you know what, just forget about it. I don't really care about justice. Just I'll let it go. No. He took the second slap himself. He maintained the proportionality. He maintained the justice. There was one slap. There was a second slap. The glorious thing about the gospel is that he took both the slaps. He took the second one himself in, in, in his son. You see, brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do in the Sermon on the Mount. We're living pictures of the gospel. Someone slaps us in the cheek, on one cheek, and we turn the other cheek. We're giving a living picture of the way God has dealt with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe spend a little too much time in that. I mean, you think further on in Matthew 18. Are you familiar, you're familiar with those we think of these sometimes as the steps of church discipline. If, 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 if someone has wronged his brother, what do you do in the church? Uh, you go and you, you talk to that brother and you try, to, you try to win him back. If that doesn't work, you go and you take a couple other brothers with you and you see if together you can, you can draw that brother in to repent and to be restored. Uh, if that doesn't work, you involve the whole church. If that doesn't work, you may have to what we sometimes call excommunicate. Um, But you see the wonderful thing there is that at every stage along the way, the message is, if he repents, you've won your brother. Jesus doesn't say, make sure he gets what he deserves. Your brother sins against you, make sure justice is done. What he says in the church of Jesus Christ is, your brother wrongs you, you go to him, and if he repents, you rejoice. And you forgive and you restore. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with that disciplinary matter in the Corinthian church. When he tells him to excommunicate this brother, hand him over to Satan, what is the ultimate reason why? So that he'll, so that justice will be done? He says, so that his soul may be saved in the day of judgment. The purpose of that discipline was repentance, it was restoration. Our church discipline, our way of handling conflict, reflects the gospel. It is to illustrate the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of restoration. What a gloriously different way to handle conflict than the way we rightly expect the civil government to handle questions of conflict, questions of justice. Okay, I want to move on to the second question that I said I was going to deal with, and that's the question of Christians and their vocations. So in this first, the first point, I was encouraging you to think about the church as a corporate body. Uh, Now I want to turn back to think about more in terms of you as individual Christians. And so the first to talk about this idea of vocations or occupations. Uh, We spend, most of us spend most of our lives working, whether that's in the home or outside the home. Uh, Most of us spend more time at work 
than we do at just about anything else. Uh, and so it is important for us to be thinking about that. How do I, how do I look at my job, my ordinary secular employment? How do I do it in a way that gives glory to God? Well, the first thing that I would like to say is that it is, uh, it's good for Christians to work. We as parents tell this to our kids. Right? We, we see that often our kids are not naturally hard workers, that doing the chores is not as immediately attractive as watching television or many, many other things. Uh, but we tell them that work is good for them. And we have to remind ourselves that work is good for us too. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, uh, mind your own business and work with your hands. Be industrious. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, don't be idle. Earn the food that you eat. He who shall not work shall not eat. And yet, we also know in Scripture that, well, as Paul says also in 1 Timothy 6, he says you can't take anything out of this world. You didn't bring anything into the world, and you can't take anything out of the world which raises some difficult questions for us. Here we are, we're called to work, to be industrious, to be productive, to be fruitful. And yet, God also says to us that, you know what? These things that you make, things you produce, uh, you know, you this wealth that you may store up for yourself, uh, you can't take it. You can't take it with you. And... Some Christians, and I'm sure this is true of many of you here, there can be struggles of motivation. Right? What is it that gets us out of bed in the morning? Uh, we know that we're not supposed to be working in order to win our salvation. We're not supposed to be working hard because we know that we're gonna, when we come to heaven, we're going to have a whole sack of good things that we've made bringing them with us. You don't get to carry your 401k with you into the new Jerusalem. So, why do we work? Why do we get out of bed in the morning? What's the point if we can't earn our salvation and we have no guarantee that we get to keep the things we make forever? I'd like to suggest three related uh, uh, considerations that I hope will... uh, Help to, help to answer that question of what is our motivation? Why is it that we work? Uh, why, in spite of the seeming vanity of a lot of our work? And let's face it, so much of our work that we do day by day, it seems kind of vain. Uh, we don't really see the good point of it often. Let me offer three considerations. First, I think part of the answer is that whenever we work hard and whenever we work well, We are serving God, even if we can't immediately see how exactly that's the case. And here, I would call your attention to Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. And he's, Paul is not writing to Christians who were high and mighty. He wasn't writing to a Colossian church that was full of influential, powerful people. We know, we can, we can tell that he was writing to people who did a lot of what we might call menial work, people who did inconsequential work, some of whom were slaves. And he says, work heartily. You're serving the Lord Christ. I'm sure they often couldn't see how that was true. But if God has helped, called us to something, we are honoring him and serving him by doing it well. And another great contribution of the Reformation uh, is the way that it talked about vocations. Vocation is just a fancy word of saying calling. We sometimes will speak about someone being called to the ministry, someone called to preach, and that is a very important calling. But one of the things the Reformation did was say that there are many callings in this world. It's not just the pastor who has a calling. Is that we all are called to many things. Some we're you can be called to be a parent, called to be a husband or a wife. You can be called to be a baker, a butcher. You can be called to be a farmer, a doctor. We are called to many things by God. And when we do that work well, we are answering that call, and God is honored. That's one thing that I think should be before us. A second point that I'd like to make here is that... Uh, Scripture calls us to find joy in a job well done, to find joy in the ordinary work that we do. The Scriptures know that a lot of work is not inherently enjoyable, that a lot of work seems more like toil than joy. But consider, for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Ecclesiastes knows a lot about the vanity of work, the vanity of life in this world, doesn't it? But consider what Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19 says. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot... Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes is a great book to lower our expectations about a lot of things in this world. There's going to be a lot of seeming vanity in your work and your labor in this world. But Ecclesiastes also says that God, God gives a gift to his people to find joy in their toils. Ultimately, it's a gift of God. We should pray to God that he would give us a sense of satisfaction, a sense of encouragement, a sense of joy in being able to take up our tasks, no matter how ordinary they are, And to see that as we work hard and accomplish something good, we are doing something with God's blessing. 
Let me mention a third thing now, a third consideration. And this is, I'm picking up a, uh, an, an insight from Martin Luther. Uh, Luther's insight was that as we take up our lawful vocations, as we take up our ordinary occupations, that we are God's instruments for serving our neighbors. And if you've read any Luther, you know Luther has, he always has some really good way to put things. He always has some memorable way to illustrate things. And one of the things that, that, that Luther points out is, is that, you know, it's, it's God who feeds people. It's God who clothes people. It's God who heals the sick. But think about how God usually does those things. He feeds people, but he does so through farmers and bakers and butchers. God clothes people, but he does so through weavers. God heals the sick, but he does so through doctors and nurses. You see... God is busy at work blessing the human race with many good things, but he is pleased to use our own humble endeavors to accomplish those things. It might be tempting to think if you're a baker or a butcher or a weaver to think, well, you know, it's not, um, not really accomplishing anything great and powerful. I'm not having any great impact and influence on this world. Then you stop and you think, I am an instrument of God to feed his children. I am an instrument of God to clothe his image bearers. I am an instrument of God to heal sick and anxious and beleaguered people. God sees fit to give us the privilege of ministering to other people in our ordinary occupations. Now, I know it's easier to see this in some occupations than others. And if you honestly look at your occupation, whatever it is, and you can't figure out any way in which you bless anyone else in any manner you might at least give some thought to finding a new job at some point. Uh, but my guess is that, all of, assuming that you all have lawful occupations, there are some unlawful occupations, there is some way, directly or indirectly, in which God is using you to bless your fellow human being. And it might not be glorious. It might not make you famous. It might not make you wealthy. It might not make you powerful. But be glad and thank God that he sees fit to use you in such a wonderful way. So how are we to do our work? I hope my comments so far have been at least a little helpful in thinking about why we work. Uh, Even if we don't see great and glorious results in our work that makes us rich and famous, uh, even if we don't seem to be changing the world uh, as we go to our ordinary occupations, We have some really good reasons to be motivated, really good reasons to go out and to work hard. Uh, But how are we to do that? Uh, that, That's the kind of question that I want to take up for the next couple of minutes. 
And one question that I want to ask here is, uh, is there a uniquely Christian way of doing all your jobs? This is something that some Christians struggle with. I don't, maybe some of you have not struggled with this, but I imagine that some of you have. Uh, when you go out into your ordinary occupations, jobs that you share with unbelievers, do you have an obligation to try to figure out some distinctive way to do your job that's going to set you apart? If you're a baker or a butcher, a weaver or a doctor, is there some uniquely Christian way of doing those things? Well, let me offer a couple of reflections on that point. First of all, there is certainly an affirmative answer to be given to that question in a certain respect. Is there something unique about the way we go about our jobs? Yes. There are at least three ways that are going to be unique. One thing that will be unique is you will do everything out of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 14, verse 23, all that which is not done by faith is sin. You do all your work with faith in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means, for one thing, that you're not going to do this work in order to think you're going to earn your salvation by it. Your faith is in Christ. You're resting in him. That's not why you're going to be working. But it also means, as you rest in Christ, that you trust that he's going to use your hard work, your lawful work, in ways that you may not see, but that are going to honor him and are going to bless your neighbor. So we do all these things out of faith in Christ. Secondly, we also do everything as Christians out of love for our neighbor. We know that we're called to love our neighbor in all things. And as we've just been considering, we are to see our vocations as ways to serve our neighbors, ways in which God blesses our neighbors through us. So that's going to be different about us. Unbelievers aren't going to understand that. And a third thing that should be unique about our work is that we do it for God's glory. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. And that no matter how humble or menial your work is, you do it for the sake of God's glorification, for the honoring of your Savior. So do you have a different motivation? Do you have a different attitude? Do you have a different goal in the work that you do? I hope so. We are called to have that. But I think it's also important to say that there may not be a unique standard of excellence for judging the external quality of your work. That may not be the most clear way to say it. Are we called to pursue excellence in our work? Yes. Are there standards for excellence in your work, whether you're a baker or a butcher or a weaver or a doctor? Yes. Are those standards of excellence for your work unique to you as a Christian? The answer may well be no. Is there a good way to be a doctor? If you go in for surgery, 
do you hope that that surgeon has some standards of excellence that he or she is going to follow? Is that standard of excellence going to be different if it's a Christian or a non-Christian surgeon? I don't think the answer is yes there, is it? Are you going to hold the non-Christian surgeon to the same standard of excellence for your surgery that you're going to hold the Christian surgeon? I think so. When I flew into Omaha yesterday, I have no idea whether that pilot was a believer or an unbeliever. I do know that there are standards of excellence for flying an airplane. And though I can't see what's going on in the cockpit, I can have a pretty good idea of how well those standards are being met. And I know that yesterday afternoon, that plane landed safely on the runway in Omaha. That pilot, he maintained certain standards of of excellence. And whether he was a believer or unbeliever, I don't know. Um, But I hold that pilot to the same standard no matter which he was. Now, you can put that into your own your own life. Maybe your job right now, maybe your occupation involves a lot of changing diapers. There are good ways of changing diapers and bad ways of changing diapers. What I want to say to you, and I hope this, maybe this is an encouragement to a couple people here. You don't have to be burdened by trying to find a uniquely Christian standard of excellence for changing a diaper. Maybe you mow lawns. Maybe you build bridges. There are standards of excellence for those things. But you know what? If you build the bridge that I'm going to drive on, or you mow a lawn that I need to look at, I'm going to hold you to the same standard that I'm going to hold the unbeliever who does that as well. And why is that? Well, you know, there are a lot of things in which the Bible does not give us instructions. You want a proof text about changing diapers? I don't have one for you. Want a proof text about mowing lawns? Don't have one for you. How to build a good bridge over the Missouri River? I don't have one for you. How do you know what those standards of excellence are? Well, we live in this world, don't we? And we observe the world. We experiment with the things of this world. We study scientific phenomenon. We have experience of things that work and don't work. And you know what? Unbelievers have access to those things too. And... There's a lot we can learn from unbelievers. There are unbelievers who do work better than we do sometimes. And instead of thinking there's something wrong with that, maybe we should give thanks to God. Maybe we should try to learn from them. Maybe we should praise him that God uses even unbelievers to accomplish productive things in this world. Think back to the covenant with Noah. God preserves this world for all of us. And he gives many gifts to unbelievers to understand this world in certain ways. So though we do strive to do our work always out of faith in Christ, out of love for our neighbor, for the glory of God, we may not always have different standards of excellence, objectively speaking, externally speaking, from our unbelieving neighbors. Well, I should move on to our last topic uh, I know you, you don't have opportunity to ask questions about these things that I mentioned in uh, uh, this third lecture, but maybe we'll have opportunity to address some of these things more. I want to turn to the question of politics. Uh, we spend, most of us spend most of our times in our ordinary vocations, what I've just been talking about. 
Sometimes we spend a lot of our time worrying about politics and fretting about politics and arguing and debating about politics. And I know that I can't say everything that needs to be said about this in 15 minutes or so, Um, but let me offer a a few thoughts that I hope can uh, be stimulating for you as you think about this. Uh, And as one of you said to me at one of the breaks, you know, it's not as, it's, um, there are a lot of things going on in Washington right now. Uh, uh, We are certainly bombarded uh, by thinking about some of these uh, these matters. The first thing that I'd like to say uh, is to, is to talk about the legitimacy of politics, the legitimacy of the work of government. Uh, I talked to you in the first lecture about one extreme, what I call the retreat from society kinds of Christians, for whom politics is just dirty, uh, many of whom from politics is something that, why would a Christian want to be involved in that? And yet, I would remind you of a few things, right? Is that God has ordained civil magistrates. We know that from Romans 13 and from a number of other passages in Scripture. We know that God has given a task to, to civil government, summarized in the idea of doing justice. That's an important task. Romans 13 tells us that God has ordained magistrates to do justice for our good, we know, it. we know that our political leaders do things that aren't always for our good. But without a system of justice, without a civil government, how much worse may things be? 1 Timothy 2 tells us that we are to pray for our civil magistrates, that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives. Right? That insofar as God blesses the work of government, and he does to some degree or another, that it enables us to go about our work, uh, to lead the kind of godly lives that we're called uh, to live. And what about working for the government? Is that legitimate? Uh, I'm sure there are some people here who work for the government, so maybe you're nervous just for a moment what I'm going to say. But I have found that there are, you know, you go into some churches and say you work for the IRS. And, I mean, I know this from, I mean, I've, I know about this happening. People actually feeling a little bit shunned because they work for the IRS uh, coming into certain churches. Uh, well, we remember that a tax collector, tax collectors came to John the Baptist. And John told them that they should be honest but he didn't tell them to leave their jobs. We know that a Roman centurion came to our Lord Jesus Christ and that Peter ministered to a Roman centurion. Those were soldiers, military officers. In the Roman government, they were never told to leave their jobs. We have the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, civil servants in Babylon. We have certainly ample biblical examples to say that working in the government, 
taking up tasks in the civil service are things that can be godly, God-honoring, and that are opportunities for service. Not opportunities to gain power, opportunities to be influential, but opportunities to serve our fellow human beings, to help to see that justice is done. And whether we work for the civil government or not, Scripture says that we should give honor to our civil officials, that we should pay our taxes, and that we should pray for our civil magistrates. We should pray for our civil magistrates, not only the ones we voted for, but also the ones we didn't vote for. We should pray for them, that they would do their jobs well. But now, even as we think about the, le- the legitimacy of government, the legitimacy of the world of political life, legal life, it's important that we remember the limits, the limits of government and the limits of politics. It's probably the case that in so much of the evangelical world at this moment, um, there may not be as much temptation to not get involved in politics. There may be temptation to put too much emphasis upon politics and upon the importance of politics. We should remember that the state's power is limited. Civil magistrates are so often, so often seem to be in the business of augmenting their power. But it's important to remember that God is the king of all things. God is the ruler of the common kingdom. God is the one, ultimately, who gives magistrates their authority. Magistrates are obligated to submit to God's law. They are not to be a law to themselves. And also important to remember that God has created other institutions. God has established families, for example. And in order to protect the authority of families and other institutions, there are some things that civil government can't do. Civil government ought not to usurp the authority, the responsibilities that are given to the family and other good institutions of society. It's also important to remember that the state's existence is temporary. As mighty as governments can seem at times, as powerful as their militaries uh, may appear, as much good things as governments can accomplish when they are acting justly, every single civil government in this world is temporary fleeting for a moment. You ever thought about what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40? Read verses 15 and 17 of this. I'm actually going to be preaching from the beginning of Isaiah 40 here tomorrow morning. Later in Isaiah 40, God says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes, this is talking about God, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Think about the nations that were in place when Isaiah wrote that prophecy. 
How many of those governments are still standing today? None. Think about the world in place when our Lord Jesus Christ said that he would establish his church and the gates of hell would not stand against it. How many nations existing then exist now? None. The United States of America, the most powerful nation in the world right now, God says it's like a drop in the bucket before me. It's nothing. I, I count it as emptiness. Perhaps the Lord Jesus will return tomorrow. And I guess in that case, America is going to make it to the end. But if the Lord Jesus delays his return, I can tell you one thing with confidence. The United States of America one day is going to fall. It is not going to exist as we know it now. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know what comes next. But even the United States of America is a drop in the bucket. I'm not saying you shouldn't be patriotic. I'm not saying you shouldn't support, cheer for our you know, Olympic athletes and work for the good of this country. But it's not going to last. It's nothing before God. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar saw a dream with the powerful nations of the world like a statue. The kingdom of God cut out from the mountain came and destroyed every last one of those kingdoms of the world. They're fleeting. That ought to put our political life, our political activism, our political obsession at times in a little bit of perspective. Things may seem out of control to us sometimes as we read the events in Washington, as we hear about terrible things taking place throughout the world but they're not out of God's control. God is the one who raises up kings and puts them down, who raises up nations and destroys them, and all is in his hands. Now let me raise one more issue before I close and we move on to the Q&A time. You might also think of this as somewhat related to this idea of the, the limits of politics, the limits, uh, putting in perspective uh, some of our temptations to be obsessed with political things. Christians disagree about politics. That's not news to you. Christians disagree with politics. Here's the next part, which may be a little bit more surprising. That's fine. Christians disagree about politics. That's to be expected. Christians to be disagree with about politics, we just need to deal with that. Politics is about prudence. Politics involves wisdom and good judgment. Politics involves making hard decisions about things that sometimes Scripture doesn't tell us much about. Christians are going to disagree about those things, and that shouldn't upset us or discourage us. Now, let me talk about that uh, just briefly. You know, there are some things that I guess we... It doesn't surprise us that Christians might disagree about them. You know, you think there should be a two-lane road out here, and your brother or sister in the church thinks it should be a four-lane road out there. It's kind of a political matter, I guess. You disagree. You're probably not going to think this is some great biblical dispute. 
But things can get tougher when we talk about issues of great moral weight. Uh, There are times when there are hard political issues that we face for which Scripture does tell us some very important things. The marriage question is obviously one that gets a lot of attention now. Abortion is one that has gotten a lot of attention over the past several decades. seems to me that we as Christians, we may agree on the moral issue and still have very serious disagreements about the political dimension of those moral issues and that that's okay. That's to be even expected. Let me try to talk about that just a little bit. Maybe uh, let, let me use abortion as an example. I don't think it's okay for Christians to have disagreements about abortion as a moral issue. I want to be clear about that. It seems to me that given Scripture's teaching and given what we know about human biology, that we are obligated as Christians to be against abortion, to favor and support the life, uh, the protection of life of the unborn. But what about when that becomes a political issue? Are there ways that we might disagree? Well, what about when it comes to voting? What about the question, can you vote for a pro-choice candidate? Christians disagree about that. Some Christians, with much seriousness, with, uh, for some weighty reasons, will argue that because abortion is such an important thing, because human life is so important, this is a fundamental obligation of government to protect human life, that favoring abortion, supporting abortion rights, disqualifies one from being uh, a good civil servant, being a good legislator. Other Christians will argue, well, what if the pro-choice candidate is very competent on 95% of the things and the pro-life candidate is a good-for-nothing scoundrel? Those kinds of things happen in political life. What if we don't actually expect any pro-life legislation to come before the legislature in the next term? Um, Or what if you are a legislator? Some Christians find themselves in legislatures. What about the bill that comes before you in the state legislature that is actually going to, would serve to reduce the number of abortions in your state but wouldn't eliminate it. Can you vote for that bill? Some Christians would say, I can't vote for that bill because I would still be voting for something that would make abortion in some circumstances legal. Another Christian comes and says, I agree with the sentiment, but in the concrete circumstances, we have an opportunity to make abortion less frequent. I'm going to support that. 
Christians disagree about that. Or think about the strategy question. Christians may all agree, uh, not, I'm not saying all Christians do agree, but a group of Christians may all agree that abortion is wrong, that we should do what we can to try to reduce or even hopefully eliminate abortion, but disagree a lot on strategy. Should we go picket the local abortion clinic? Some Christians do. Other Christians are not so sure that that's the best thing to do. Some Christians write. They write things about abortion. Most Christians don't take up the pen to support the unborn. Some Christians work for crisis pregnancy centers. Saying, some Christians will say, our political, our focus on the politics of abortion over the last 40 years has failed. Maybe we should just forget about politics and go do practically good things like help women in crisis pregnancy situations. Other Christians don't get involved in those things. Part of what I am trying to get at here is politics is part of life in the common kingdom. And life in the common kingdom is never going to be perfect. It's always going to be filled with sin. We're always going to be making compromises. I know that that's actually a debate sometimes in politics, isn't it? Should we compromise or not? But ultimately, you have to make compromises if you're going to be in politics because you, you have to live with people who don't share all your views on things. And when we as Christians have to make decisions about compromising, decisions about how do we make the best of a less than ideal situation, we're going to disagree because we can't always find a biblical text that's going to give us the answer. We're going to have to make judgment calls. We're going to have to exercise the prudence that God has seen fit to give us. And so I suggest that we're called as Christians to be, uh, to be slow to condemn one another for making different prudential judgments, for making different, uh, uh, these different judgment calls about some of these difficult, controversial political matters. Let us be careful about binding one another's consciences on matters that Scripture does not address. Uh, let us see, let us try to work together for those goods that we do agree on, those biblical matters, those biblical uh, goods uh, that Scripture uh, tells us about, and try to respect and encourage one another uh, in the various work that we have been given to do as we seek to make godly judgments uh, before, uh, before our God. So I will, uh, we're at the time to wrap things up, so we're going to do some Q&A now, I guess.